0: You know, it's Halloween weekend, and um, I'm dressed as Tim Keller. If you don't know Tim Keller, you're not going to get that. If, you're, if you know Tim Keller, he always wears a sports coat, and uh, he looks a lot better than I do. Very, very dignified, but um, I actually pray for him. He's got an incredible ministry in New York City, around the world, actually, but um, be praying for him. You know, there's a TV show that absolutely pulls me into it. It captivates me. Now, now you got to understand, we don't have cable television. We have the internet, and we have Netflix, and so I watch this off of Netflix, and I tell you that little tidbit of information just to let you know, this is how much I like this show. This is how much I really enjoy watching it, that I'll go to Netflix, which I typically don't really enjoy, but it pulls at me, and it pulls at the deepest part of me that yearns, I think, to be set free, and the show is called Mountain men. How many of you have watched that show? How many of you feel like your life's not complete because you really haven't watched that show? Some of the same people that raised their hand for the first raised their hand for the second. I think we got some issues here. Marty the Alaskan Trapper. I love that guy. He's my favorite. Rich from Montana. The guy chases mountain lions and bobcats with his dogs. You've got Tom Orr from, he's also from Montana. Uh, I think he's 185 years old. He's as tough as nails. I mean, he's amazing. And my least favorite, Eustace, from North Carolina. He's a homesteader in the Blue Ridge Mountains. But it was actually Eustace that I saw, that I was watching, and he taught me an interesting lesson about brokenness. I want to give you that lesson. He and his uh, partner, his sidekick, Preston, were making a canoe. And if you've watched the show, they told this about 100 times now. He, had to pay, he, he received a loan to be able to save his land. And so now he's doing whatever he can to be able to pay back that loan. So they're going to make a canoe. And in making the canoe, they, they have to bend strips of cedar in order to create the curvature necessary So Eustace started a fire, and this is so fascinating to me. He puts a tea kettle on the fire and lets it start to produce steam, and then he puts a pipe over the spout of the tea kettle, and down that pipe go the strips of cedar wood. See, that steam and that heat has to saturate that pipe, and he put one down there, and he pulled it out, and then he applied pressure to that wood to mold it to the curvature that he needed and the first time it cracked in half so he gets another strip of cedar wood and this time he puts down the pipe and he leaves it in there a little bit longer not too long but long enough he pulls it out then he puts it over his knee and he begins to bend it and that cedar wood begins to bend and when he relents with the pressure now watch this because this is going to factor into jonah when he lets go of the pressure the strip of wood retains its shape. Now return to Jonah with that picture in mind. And see in him, if you've, if you've been here for this series and you're familiar with the prophet's I want you to see in Jonah that unyielding, rebellious heart that refused to bend to the will of God. When God gave him the assignment, Jonah said no. He hands his resignation letter to, to God and he leaves in the exact opposite direction. It's a, an unyielding, unbending spirit. Now, it would be tempting probably to go down our nose at Jonah and say, Jonah, you should have known better. But I want to remind you, there's probably not anybody that's listening to this sermon, including the one that's giving it, that does not have traces of Jonah in us. And God applies the pressure. Now watch, in the heat of the storm, storms in life bring heat. They are trials, and the heat of being thrown overboard onto the surface of those storm-tossed seas and swallowed by that great fish, he's applying pressure, God is, to Jonah, and he's bringing Jonah, now you've got to hear this, to a place of brokenness where his spirit is now going to be pliable, flexible, bendable, malleable, moldable, Interject whatever synonym you want. This is where God is bringing him to the place where he will bend his knee to the Lord. The process of heat produced pliability. Now you heard that, right? Three words. Heat produced pliability, bendability. That process is what the Bible calls brokenness. Martin Luther once said this, he said, God creates out of nothing, therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Now, I don't know if you take notes, but if you do, I would write that one down. I think that's a pretty insightful quote from Martin Luther. God creates out of nothing, therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of Out of him. You see, this is the aim, this is the goal, this is the process that God is doing for every single one of his children. Think for a moment with me have there ever been times of brokenness in your life? And if there have, whether they were big or small times, did they ever come without pain or discomfort? And I think you're probably already answering that no. I don't think brokenness can occur without pain, without the heat. But brokenness is a multi-event Process. In other words, you don't just get broken one time. God doesn't just bring the heat of a storm once and all of a sudden our hearts are bendable and they retain the shape of Christ. That doesn't happen one time in life. There are multiple phases of brokenness. It is a process in our hearts that always involves difficulty and pressure. And as we've seen in this series so far, there is in each of us this tendency to rebel. I really hope that's one of the main things you've gotten so far in this series. There is in each of us a tendency to be rebellious. So let me bring you back into the depths of our hearts for a moment. You ready? Let's take that journey again. And this is going to sound maybe a little repetitive, but we all know that repetition is the mother of learning. Our flesh wants to forget this. The flesh is the organic, not the non-organic. It's not the physical. It's the spiritual part of us that resists God's will, that fights with an energy against God. That flesh makes you want to forget what I've been teaching on this. So let's pin the flesh to the wall and let's get our minds around this again. You ready? Now you got to hear this. Sin is deeper than our actions. If you reduce sin to doing things that we ought not to do or not doing the things that we ought to do, then you've got a surface level of sin. And listen, you're not going to be able to find ultimate, deep, radical transformation and freedom from that sin. Sin is deeper than our actions. It's as deep as our hearts. And the heart... That the scripture talks about is the very center of your being it's where your desires it's where our motivations it's where our expectations reside listen the heart do you remember when Mary heard from Simeon after the birth of Jesus and Anna the the priestess or the prophetess do you remember when those words came to her and listen the text says that Mary pondered these things in her heart we think in our hearts the way that we think or where we think the very being the very center the very motivational power even for our thoughts is the heart above all else guard your heart for from it flow the wellsprings of life it's the heart where sin resides and sinful actions are not the ultimate problem. It's what we focus on, but they're not the ultimate problem. It's the heart of rebellion. It's the heart of faithlessness where faith is lacking. That's the problem. That's the center of the, of the issue. It is deep, deep, deep within us that our will is at odds with God's will. Where we have no problem with God, watch, unless he is an obstacle to what we want. We're great with God until all of a sudden what God wants is contrary to what we want. And then all of a sudden the heart lurches into rebellion and what comes out of it are the actions of sin. In a very severe but universal way, we can see this rebellious heart in what I'm about to read you. What I'm going to read to you is an excerpt from a letter that an atheist wrote what he would do, what he would say to God if he dies and finds out that he was wrong. This is the letter that he wrote. It's just an excerpt. You know, I'm going to startle you with this. It's it's an extremely informative letter. What you're going to hear in this is the rawness of every single heart of every human being ever born until Christ redeems that person. Now listen, here's the atheist. He's standing before God. He found out after death, I guess there really is a God. He's before the judgment seat. The Father, and through his right hand, Jesus. I'm not going to kneel or anything if you don't mind. That would kind of be like shutting the barn door after the cows have run out, don't you think? You know, now that the initial shock of being dead is starting to wear off, I find myself getting angry. I'm trying to restrain it, but this whole situation is absurd. According to most accounts, this is the part where you judge me. Who the blank are you to be a moral judge you're a sadistic genocidal sex-obsessed tyrant and i was glad that the bible was a work of seeming fiction because the belief that all of the most terrible things in the world were at the worst designed by or at the best permitted by an all-powerful conscious being that was too horrible to not hate It's oddly refreshing to find that all this time I was outraged by something that's more tangible. I guess it's fitting. Humanity's first act of defiance was to want knowledge to be more like you. Well, then let my last act of defiance be choosing ignorance so that I could be as unlike you as possible. You're going to judge me. On behalf of all that's good and decent in your creation, I judge you. I may have been a willful child, but you were a terrible father. And I can't say I'm really inclined to beg for my soul now, given what I said about you knowing me perfectly. Even so, supposing mercy's still an option and that last rant didn't kill my chances, I guess it's worth a shot. I can't pretend I have any love for you, but no principle is worth being damned over if it could be helped. What shall I say in my defense? All right, well, I tried to be good without you. So you created us because you desired companionship and love? Well, then you needed me. I didn't need you. I grew up and took responsibility for my own life. If that really is the greatest crime of all, then there's nothing more that I can say. The deck was stacked against me, but honestly, I can truly say that I, if, that I have no regrets. Heaven, hell, oblivion, your move, God. Now watch and listen. That sounds stark to Christianized ears, but that's the heart without God. That's the rebelliousness that every single human being is born with. Our hearts were one of rebelliousness, even in his imagination, in this man's imagination, even when standing before God himself, and his heart is the heart that every single person is born with. Romans 8 7 says the Apostle Paul for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law indeed it cannot so here we go the the mind Mary pondered in her heart the mind is the heart the center of your being the heart is your mind, it's your emotions, and it's your will in Hebrew thought. This is biblically what the heart is. It's the very epicenter of what it means to be human. And that epicenter is not only hostile to God, it will not, it does not, and it cannot submit to God's law. Listen, this is the rebelliousness, and this is the defiance that's in human living. Sinful actions aren't the depth of the problem, it's the heart that's at war with God. You see, as a result of Adam and Eve's sin, every human being is born with pervasive corruption. It's called total total depravity. It's different than utter depravity. Total depravity means that the corruption of sin has spread through every area of our being. Utter depravity means that every single person is as evil and sinful as they possibly could be. Listen, this is not utter depravity. It's the pervasiveness of corruption. There is no part of any person that is not affected by sin. The mind is, the the will is, the emotions are, and they render them morally unable to do what God has commanded. This is what sin's corruption has done. We are unable to do what God commands. This is why I think I would encourage you to maybe think through the concept of a free will. I don't believe it exists. If it existed, you would be able to do, and this was Arminian's argument against Calvin, you would be able to do what you wanted to do, but the Bible is clear you cannot not sin before Christ. But when God saves someone, he forgives that person of his or her sin. But watch, listen. But more deeply, more radically, he gives that person a new heart with a moral capability that is now able to choose God. Now, did you hear that? This is so utterly important. I am telling you what the gospel is. The heart of every human being before they put their faith in Christ is rebellious and defiant and hostile to God. It cannot submit to God's law, it just cannot. But when Jesus Christ saves somebody, he takes that old heart, it is spiritual circumcision, takes that old heart out of them and puts a new heart in them. This is a heart of flesh, that was a heart of stone, and now there pulses within them, the ability, the moral want to, to do what God wants. He says in Ezekiel 36, And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you, and, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and to be careful to obey my rules. So, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, Paul says, for it is because God works in you to will and to want his good pleasure. See, there is a moral want to that is put into the new heart that Christ gives, and now this heart's got the power to lay down our arms and submit willingly to the throne and obey. See, salvation leaves no person's heart the same as it was, which was helplessly caught up in rebellion. Now watch, now listen, this is really important you grasp this. Otherwise, if, let me reiterate that. Salvation leaves no person's heart the same as it was, which was helplessly caught up in rebellion. Otherwise, now you gotta hear this, otherwise it would be similar to putting a new coat of paint on a termite infested house. You're not getting to the problem. There is a new heart, there is a new mind, there is a new engine that powers a new way of life, one that is pleasing to God, and this engine, listen, it requires the oil of the Holy Spirit, it is cooled by the water of the Word of God, it is powered by the divine energy of Christ Himself. So, Christian brother and sister, we can say with Paul, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. That's the power and the new heart that Christ has given you the moment you put your faith in him now here's where it turns you ready we're going to go back to joan in just a moment moment yet even though we have a new heart a new moral capability there is still this residual opposition which is how we began called the flesh so easily tempted And eager to rebel against God. You know, I had a terrible, terrible week of temptation. I think it was kind of a little bit of the enemy attacking me for preaching this. I had to really spend time before church tonight just confessing to the Lord. My anger, my irritable attitude. It was just a hard week morally. That flesh... It is an impulse within Tim Ackley to defy God and to be my own God. To get up on my throne and to bring me my pleasure as I want it. And whoever gets in the way in my idle, saturated moment is going to receive my opposition. Opposition. And sometimes our flesh, for a season, can gain the upper hand. It can move us to life choices mired in defiance. And God's actions, what does God do about it? His actions are not those of reprisals. Listen, he joins us in the battle. Now this is a corrective for some of you. Because there lurks within a lot of Christians this idea, you know what, I've fallen this week, I've sinned today. God is angry at me, God is going to get me back, God is going to punish me. I'm telling you right now, God treats you as children, he will discipline you out of his love, and watch what he will do. He will join you in the battle to disarm the flesh with the power that's in the new heart that he has given to you. why a w tozer wrote this deliverance can come to us only by the defeat of our old life safety and peace came only after we have been forced to our knees god rescues us by breaking us by shattering our strength and wiping out our resistance listen when god joins you in the battle you better hear this he's going to break us He's not going to give you more confidence in your flesh. He's going to disarm the flesh by breaking it. And he always breaks through the heat and the storms of trials. And this is where we find Jonah as he is floating on the storm-tossed Mediterranean Sea. Now, I'm going to give you seven components. I'm going to give you two today. We're going to pick this up the next time. I'm going to give you seven components of brokenness. What does brokenness look like? How can it happen? What is God doing behind the scenes, way deep down in our hearts? Well, I'm going to give you seven things he's going to do in Jonah's life. Here's the first two. Here's the first of the two. He begins, Jonah does, to turn vertically. Now look at your text with me. We're finally in the text. Took a while. Y'all didn't think I was going to get there. Jonah chapter 2, then Jonah, verse 1, prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me, out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. Finally, praise. You know, the very moment in verse 3 of chapter 1, that Jonah hears, or verse 2, that Jonah hears his assignment from God. In that very moment that his flesh began to rear up and began to climb up to the throne and tell God either move over or get off because I don't like this assignment. I don't agree with this job, and therefore I'm not going to do it. That very moment is when Jonah should have been partnering with God to disarm the flesh through prayer. Listen, if you want to know why we are so weak, why we are so, so, so uh, easily tempted and give in to that temptation, well, listen, I can guarantee you, where's your prayer life? If you've got a vibrant intimate long before the presence of god often in the throne of mercy at the foot of the throne you're going to have power i'm going to have power to say no to temptation if you are giving into temptation often then you're not in prayer and neither was jonah very Moment in that storm that the sailors, pagans, were calling out to their own God. Jonah is woken up, brought up on deck. Not once does he cry, out to God. But now he's in the belly of the great fish. Finally, we hear him pray. Called out to the Lord. That's Old Testament language for prayer. He prayed Out of my distress, he says. Well, you know what? That word distress, this is why I took you to Psalm 107 three weeks ago. The word distress, very similar to what we saw then in Psalm 107 by the word trouble. Here's what it means. You ready? Get the imagery. It means a a narrow, tight place that you are caught up in and it's making you miserable. That's what it means. So Jonah's in this great fish, can't be real roomy, probably not a Hilton fish. It's, he's in a very narrow place, very slimy, very dark, very dank. Don't think Pinocchio, don't think lighting a fire in the whale. This is not what happened. He is in a tight, miserable, narrow place, and he cries out, he prays from within it. He's in misery. But will misery produce Brokenness and let's walk through that a little bit I know miserable people Who are exactly opposite from broken people How do you know the difference Distress or misery listen friends it's not the end goal It is what moves us toward the goal which is brokenness and prayers You got to hear this prayers of misery Do not rise, they echo back on your own ears. Miserable people do not find the merciful, reciprocating voice of God speaking back to them. They can't because Psalm 51 says the sacrifices of God are a broken sacrifice. Spirits, a broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. Listen, if your spirit is not broken, then God will despise. Misery and brokenness are almost literally diametrically opposed. Misery, here's what misery is. It keeps selfish plans and agendas alive. It's still a self-commitment to what you want. Brokenness acknowledges that those plans have burst into pieces. There is nothing you can do to fix it. Misery complains about the situation. Brokenness appeals for help. Misery tends to blame other people, while brokenness accepts responsibility. Misery sees yourself as a victim, even a martyr. Brokenness sees yourself as either the perpetrator, the accomplice, You're getting what you deserve. You appeal to mercy. Mercy is never given to those who deserve it. It's given to those who don't. And misery will lead to bitterness. Brokenness will lead to mercy. Now think of Jonah for a moment. If Jonah's heart was in the form of a compass, it was pointing straight at himself. That's where he was heading. He's north. That's the compass of a miserable person he paid his own fare here's that northern jonah bound compass pointing compass he's asleep in the ship's cabin he doesn't pray in the storm he gave the solution to have himself thrown into the sea every one of those are evidences of a self-directed life he's all about him he didn't pray on top of the seas look at the text chapter 2 he's not praying He's not praying while he's drowning. Listen, verse 1 says, he began to pray within the belly of the fish from the depths of Sheol, which was a metaphor for the belly of the fish. His soul began to move away from a rebellious, defiant stance. It began to turn upward to God in the tight place of the fish's belly. Friends, a miserable person is a self-absorbed person who does not get what they want. Jonah's life is falling apart. His best efforts had failed. He was stuck in the belly of that fish. He finally realizes that he's responsible for it. It begins to turn back to God. Seven components I'm giving you, how to detect brokenness, seven ways to understand how God leads us into brokenness, Here's the second one. The first was that our hearts begin to finally turn vertically towards God. The second one is this. It's a recognition that God's hand, God's hand had brought him to this right place, this tight place rather. Look at verse 3, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. You see, when you begin to recognize and believe that God is the one who cast you into the sea of trouble, friends, it's possible to find peace. Did you know that? When you can begin to know by faith that it is God who has brought you to this tight place, then you will begin to have peace entering your soul why well look at what he, look at his language again for you cast me into the deep it's not a whining complaint listen this is the dawning of hope this is the beginning of hope think king david foolishly rebelliously against all counsel takes a senses to count his army that was expressly forbidden in exodus chapter 30 verse 12 when you take the census of the people of israel then each shall give a ransom for his life to the lord when you number them that there may be that there be no plague among them when you number them listen he was not to have done this the reason they were not to do his census. now hear this the reason they were not to take his census is that A man only had the right to count what belonged to him. When David counted the census, he's counting it as if the army belonged to him and his security and his faith was in the fighting force, not in the God of Israel. God gave this law in Exodus 30 to remind Israel that every single one of them belonged to him alone. They're not shared. He's not co-regent with David. They're not both gods and Davids. They are gods. We are gods. We are not to take that census. But David claimed them as, as his own. He put his confidence in them. So God gives him the choice of three punishments. And listen to what David chooses and why. He says this, I am in great distress. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is very great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. That was one of the choices, fall into the hand of an enemy or fall into the hand of God. He chose God because he knows how great his mercy is. For you cast me into the deep as the dawning of hope. It is better that God throws me in than the sailors. But we saw, look at verse 15 of chapter 1, we saw that the sailors threw Jonah into the sea, yet Jonah's heart had begun to turn vertically. Now watch, when your heart begins to turn vertically, all of a sudden your eyes, your heart, the eyes of your heart are opened and you can see the hand of God. Whereas before you can't see it, now it all of a sudden, the realization, God, you're the one that threw me in. Yes, the sailors picked him up. Yes, it really happened that they threw him in. But God, over all of that, sovereignly superintended it. Haven't you ever, friends, had that experience of being in that tight place, that trial that's really difficult, and then suddenly, with just eerie clarity, you can see how the hand of God has been working all along? Misery clouds the mind, it distorts the truth, but brokenness begins to clear away the fog and you can begin to see things as they actually are. So yes, on one level the sailors threw him in, but yet on a much higher level it was the sovereign hand of God bringing about his perfect plan and bringing Jonah in to brokenness. I love what Johnny Erickson Tata, who's a quadriplegic, once wrote. She said, God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. God permits what he hates to achieve what he loves. Now look at verse 3 and he says, listen to how Jonah speaks of the waves and the billows. All your waves and all your billows passed over me. Not the waves and the billows. These are gods. These belong to him, the, way, the wind or the, the waves and the billows. Think forward to the gospels. Think of Jesus asleep in that great storm and the boats beginning to sink. He's woken by these terrified disciples and he gets up and he rebukes the wind and the raging waves. So they ceased and there was calm. This is the power of God. When he commands, even the wind and the waves cease immediately. But yet, for Jonah, they kept going. Look at the text. They were washing over him. They're making him sink. They are plunging him below the surface. They are driving him to the depths. They're his partners, God's partners, the waves and the billows, to bring him to brokenness. They belong to God personally. His name is on the wave and the billow. Listen, if you're in a trial that seems to hit you like a wave and you get your feet back under you, and here comes another one, they've got God's initials on them. He's driving you to brokenness. He's bending you in the heat, and you'll retain the shape of Christ. He's breaking you. He's the responsible party. Who threw Jonah into the sea? God did. Who brings the waves and the billows that are sending him to what is certain death? God is. This is the marriage, friends, that won't float anymore. Seems to be falling apart. Can't be fixed by that same old cycle of you get hurt and then you heal. You get hurt and then you heal. Finally, there is no more healing. This is the marriage that is sinking. And God's going to use it to bring brokenness. This is the crushing financial collapse that sends a person spiraling into ruin. God will no longer allow selfish money management to be an idol in your heart. He's going to sink it. He's going to bring you to brokenness. This is the rug that's pulled out from under your feet with that prognosis that defines a defies rather a lifetime of healthy eating and exercise. You got cancer. Well, God will no longer allow the illusion that you can add one hour to your life in self sufficient energy, it begins to sink. You. And he brings you brokenness. This is the discovery of the empty bottles in the bottom of the trash can when somebody's an alcoholic in the marriage. God's no longer going to allow you to find your refuge in anything but him. Listen, he's plunging Jonah to the bottom of the Mediterranean and his hands to do it are the waves and the billows left and right. Yet Jonah has a long way to go before his heart will break. And you're going to find with me that brokenness is a process because he will be spit out of that great fish's mouth back onto the sea, onto the land. And you will see in him still a heart that needs brokenness. God will not be done with him yet. And even at the end of the book, Jonah is still going to be in need of brokenness. Is that not a picture of you and is that not a picture of me? Jonah's on his way down to the bottom, but he isn't there yet. And we're going to pick it up next time in that descent, and we're going to look at it together.